Welcome to the Cluey Podcast, where we help conscious consumers like you get cluied into the latest conscious tips, topics, and brands from impact-driven founders to experts and thought leaders on the topic at hand. I'm your host, Mary Claire Mannard, founder and CEO of Cluey. Let's get cluied in. Today's topic, what's the deal with plant-based pet diets? To discuss this, our guest today is Caroline Buck, co-founder and chief marketing officer of Petaluma, a plant-based dog food and treat brand. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And, you know, I want to hear a little bit more about your story about starting Petaluma and how it came to be. Can you share that with us? I'd love to. Yeah. So Petaluma was started by myself and my co-founder, Garrett, who's now conveniently my husband. It makes work life a little bit uh, more consolidated. Um, and we started Petaluma in 2019 with this overarching goal of wanting to create a sustainable and planet-friendly dog nutrition line. We were both increasingly concerned with the climate crisis and we're changing our dietary habits and purchasing behaviors in pretty much every category um, except for our pets. Um, and Garrett was working in the pet food industry. Um, he, it's, it's a really interesting $30 billion industry um, but has some really severe negative environmental consequences that um, can sometimes be really hidden in processed foods like dogs and cat food. Um, so part of our inspiration for starting Petaluma was in reaction to some of those negative externalities and kind of the disconnect between the treatment of animals raised as feed for animal food um, and the kind of intrinsically empathetic uh, nature of being a pet parent. You're caring for one animal, but you have to harm others to get there. Um, so I think that was a big, a big uh, reason why we wanted to create a brand in the pet food space. And also just to talk more about sustainability. It's not something that you really hear beyond packaging in the pet food space. Um, there are very few, or I think for the third B Corp in the pet food space, which is kind of odd for an industry that's centered around taking care of another animal. Um, so yeah, we started in 2019 as a direct-to-consumer business. Our products were just sold online and continue to be sold online in a few select stores. Um, and we spent about two years in R&D and launched our first product last summer. Wow. Well, that's pretty cool, especially given, you know, your co-founder um, having come from the space, it really speaks to that saying, that age old saying of, you know, seeing how the sausage is made, uh, you know, of course, that's an indicating that you're not as interested in, in eating sausage after knowing how the sausage is made. So uh, really coming from the inside of the industry, I'm sure was was quite eye opening. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's surprising for a lot of people. And I think, it makes sense if you think about it, like what is going to end up in pet food has historically been what's left over, um, which can be sustainable, but those trends are changing. And I think especially younger consumers, they're interrogating ingredient labels. They're thinking more intensely about what they're purchasing. So um, it's an interesting space and it's a very interesting little industry. And when you say what's left over, you mean what's left over of the animal that's being processed for human consumption or something else. Yes. Interestingly, kind of historically, like decades ago, uh, pet food was, they would call it like the three D's, diseased, dying, and dead. It was animals that were not considered safe for human consumption mm. uh, or were animal parts that were not interesting for humans. So like chicken feather meal is an ingredient in dog food, 
So in some ways that there's like a way to look at that as like, okay, this is, this is using waste. So it's a, it's byproduct. It's another market for these things that we toss out. Um, but in the last decade plus that's been changing human, human nutrition, um, people want better cuts of meat or they want more, um, higher grades of meat. And they want that for their dog with the rise of these like fresh and frozen dog food companies, like our farmer's dog, they're now creating competition for human meat, um, by wanting human grade, um, ingredients in their dog's food as well. So I think historically it's been, and certainly those markets still exist. Pet food kind of got the waste, the leftover animal proteins. Um, and that's been changing a little bit with recent trends around, um, pets as family members, maybe more so than in the past. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because there is a bit of a, a conflict there of, you know, if you're, if you are going to, um, use animals for human consumption or whatever else, like the most sustainable way to use animals is to go snout to tail and, and use every part that you can. Um, and that's kind of been built into decades of, of practices, even indigenous uh, traditions as practices include using the whole animal. Um, but at the same time, it is a little odd to think, well, if I were to eat that, why would I want my dog to eat that? So, um, right. that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty interesting trend. And I guess, you know, to dive really into the, the meat, uh, pun intended of our show today, um, you know, you mentioned how things are changing in the pet food world, but plant-based pet diets, uh, you know, like I said, it's generally uh, been let's question the status quo of the dog food market, but plant-based options, um, on the other hand, are, are something even even more, uh, you know, I guess different than than the status quo. Um, why do you think that this space was due, you know, for a reckoning of sorts? You kind of already touched on this, but but please, you know, dive a bit deeper and tell us why you think it was ready for this reckoning. Yeah, I mean, I think it's super hidden in process products like pet food. I think it's really interesting. You know, I personally stopped eating meat years before I stopped feeding it to my dog. I think that's probably a progression that happens to lots of people who are buying Petaluma. It's just not something that you intrinsically think of as meat if you're buying a dry shelf-stable product. I think it takes like a little bit of interrogation to get there. And it's it's interesting because there's such a high volume of animal protein going into pet food, but it's in like the laundry detergent aisle in Safeway, or it's like in the same space as these other just like grocery items. Um, and interestingly, like pretty much every other aisle, I think has had like a pretty big shift or it has had a wave of new entrants who so are talking about clean ingredients or um, a more using less intensive resources to produce them. Pet food has kind of been uh, free from that scrutiny for the most part, there's been a little bit of conversation, mostly within the industry itself about alternative proteins like insects or using more plant-based ingredients. Um, but it just hasn't had that reckoning yet. And I think, I think part of that is from just the fact that it's traditionally so processed that we don't really think of it as much as like buying a steak versus impossible meat or something. Right. Um, and I think part of it is that there's been a really big push. We're kind of in like the paleo era of dog food still. Like there's a tr dog food kind of trails, human food trends, pet food trends. Um, and I think we're still, we're still in the end of the paleo uh, <laughs> wave in the pet space. There's still an interesting grain-free, like carbohydrate restricting diets. 
Um, there's a big focus on raw meat and fresh and frozen meat. Um, so I think that those tides are shifting. It's just been trailing behind um, human trends. And I, I don't personally think that sustainability is a trend. I think it's something that will stay with us. Um, so I'm hopeful that people will start to think maybe a little bit more deeply about ingredients in pet food and where it comes from. And yeah, what, like, can you share maybe a, a, a really juicy stat with us about the mainstream dog food market that you think most consumers probably don't know? Yeah, I think, and this was really surprising to me, but the density of calories in dog food is pretty shocking. Like a cup of food is like a Subway sub. Um, wow. It's just very calorically dense product. So you end up like the Americans, there's a, a stat that came out of UCLA a few years ago by, I think his name was Dr. Oaken, um, that 25 to 30% of all meat in the US is consumed by pets. Wow. So cats and dogs are eating. So it's it's sizable. So if someone in your family goes vegan or goes vegetarian, that's, you know, it's making a small dent maybe in your overall household's footprint. And a dog is almost like a person in terms of calories, depending on how large your dog is, of course. Um, so it's, it's sizable. It's not insignificant how many calories pets are eating in the U S. Um, and so what type of protein we feed them does shift what, what is produced, what's grown. Um, I was very surprised that like, if you tally up all the cats and dogs in the U S their meat consumption is the same as all of the people in Texas, California, and Pennsylvania. It's Whoa. a lot. It's very, it's like 80 million people. Wow. So our, our love of dogs has some serious environmental consequences that aren't, it's not frivolous to change the proteins that they're eating if you could do it at scale. Um, so it's, it has a lot of promise. I think if you can think about it, it's like the macro sense and the trends that we currently have had in the pet food industry are worsening those stats probably like it's only increasing the amount of animal protein being consumed. Um, and nearly all pet food is using factory farmed animal protein. You'd have to really uh, find something local for that not to be true. Yeah, no, I mean, those are some pretty eye-opening statistics for sure. And and specifically, I guess, going into now plant-based pet diets, you know, thinking about uh, the obvious impact as you've already yeah. laid out for us is the impact on our planet. What are some tangible impacts that Petaluma has had from an environmental standpoint to date? So specifically, yeah. So today we have two products. We have a baked dog food, which is a complete diet for adults. And we have a sweet potato jerky, which is a replacement for like a rawhide or a chicken jerky. Um, and we conduct life cycle assessments for our products, um, which probably most of your listeners are aware of, but are pretty uncommon in the pet food. They're, it's complicated sourcing pet food. It comes from all over the place, um, individual ingredients. So if you compared our largest sized bag is 18 pounds. If you compared like head to head, an 18 pound bag of Petaluma with an 18 pound bag of a generic meat inclusive, like a blue buffalo or something, it's like bag to bag, 2,200 gallons of fresh water saved, 5,300 square feet of land use um, reduced and 185 pounds of CO2, which wow. sounds like maybe not that much, but over the lifespan of a dog or over a year of switching over it's it's pretty sizable it's it's as similar to a human as we had like kind of chatted about earlier it's similar to a human switching over to a vegan diet um it's pretty significant yeah and of course you know the the next impact that i think probably matters most to most pet owners would be 
you know, that they would be concerned with is the impact on the animal, meaning their animal, their pet. And according to PetMD, which by the way, I didn't even know was <laughs> until preparing for this interview, but according to PetMD, cats are considered to be carnivores and dogs are considered to be omnivores. Now, I know Petaluma is focused on food and treats for dogs, but given meat is a part of their standard diets, does plant-based eating negatively impact that? No. And there's some super fun studies that have come out about it lately. I think we'll only see more of this. And the burden from my perspective and the way that we market the product is we want to be as good as meat. We won't make claims without using scientific evidence to say we are better than like, we're not, I think the biggest hurdle for most people is to see equivalency that they're getting the same. If you submitted a scoop of Petaluma to a lab and a scoop of a meat-based food to a lab, their amino acid profiles will look identical. That's the goal for us is to achieve parity from a nutrition perspective. Um, but some of the fun like stats I usually share with people, they've done studies with um, Iditarod racing dogs. One was fed a vegan diet, one was fed a meat-based diet. They performed identically well, no yeah. health issues, no concerns. Um, beyond the fact that there's been like dogs for decades and decades eating this way. The longest living dog ever was vegan. She was a dog named Brandle, Bramble in the UK. She lived to be 25, which is like my new target for my dog. I now like fully expect him to live to be 25. <laughs> um, and they've done lots of different studies that have shown that dogs can thrive on these plant-based diets. I think it's important for people to realize too, that for the most part, until somewhat recently, dog food manufacturers relied on plant-based proteins. They have some of the longest track records in the space too, as being successful for dogs. And wow. a lot of the genetic adaptations that dogs have that enable them to be omnivores um, it's what distinguishes them from wolves. There have been some like super fun, um, for anyone who's really into like the history of their archeology span or those things, there've been some super fun studies that have come out showing that dogs basically joined us humans when we started farming. And so we were mostly eating grains. Um, they were alongside us eating what we ate and humans were not eating a ton of meat, uh, <laughs> in early civilizations. It was more of a rare uh, part of their most, most human civilizations diets. So there's a really long track records of animals eating grains. They, unlike they, they develop really specific genetic adaptations to digest carbohydrates, for example. Um, so it's very interesting. It's not to suggest obviously veganism or vegetarianism is a choice that humans make for themselves. Um, not to suggest that dogs are naturally following any philosophy. They can't be you know, they can't belong to a political party or religion the same way that they can't follow a dietary philosophy. Um, but there's some, just a really interesting long track record of omnivorous behavior from dogs and from humans. Um, and it's what makes them special. I think in a lot of ways that they've trailed us in what they eat and they've largely relied on humans for their diet over time. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, I think you mentioned, you mentioned this to me before this podcast that, uh, that I found fascinating too, is that there's so many cultures in the world that have been plant-based for in, in cases, thousands of years. Um, so like many cultures in India, and you were mentioning that one of the larger, like mainstream multinational uh, pet food companies have been providing plant-based products to that market, you know, because of the fact that uh, plant-based nutrition is, is, is a priority and, and kind of like the norm out there. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. It's, you know, things I didn't know until meeting more people in this space um, and doing my own research when we were originally creating the company. But 
for cultures that have avoided eating um, some of the primary animal proteins that go into dog food, like beef, for example, um, or they have less access to certain protein sources, maybe, um, you know, dogs eat what humans eat largely, and they have been successful in diets that largely, um, for lack of a better word, feed off of humans. So in the case of the largest pet food manufacturers on the planet, which are Mars and Nestle, they have had meat-free lines for decades. I, wow. It's hard to say exactly when, but in pretty much every market in the U.S., you can find something that's plant-based. It might be hidden or it might be not what they're prioritizing because it's potentially not. It's I think it's challenging for any big CPG company to sell any particular philosophy since they're catering to everyone. They have yeah. a diet for every type of person. Um, but it was really interesting to find that out, that it's not really a new concept. Um, and it's, it's certainly been around for a while. It's, it's just less, less mainstream in the U S. Um, and it's interesting to see too, what's happening in Europe and other places where some of that conscious consumerism has taken hold maybe a bit, a bit more strongly than it has in the U S so far. And in some cases, it's also, uh, you know, you mentioned to me that it's actually in some cases for maybe some of your consumers who wouldn't necessarily be adhering to uh, a plant-based diet because they're adhering to any sort of philosophy, they're actually doing it for their pet's health because there could be like a, a poultry allergy or some sort of allergy that the vet of that pet has recommended that they transition to a, a, a different protein source. Is that correct? Yes. And it's really weird. I had to really do a double take the first few times I heard that because I've never met a person who's allergic to beef or dairy or well to dairy, of course we have sensitivities, but I've never heard of anyone being allergic to beef or chicken or pork. I don't know anyone who's ever developed an animal protein allergy, but they are the most common allergens to dogs. So if a dog is experiencing an, and probably because that's what we've typically fed them, like those are really common, um, food sources. So they've developed allergies to them. But if a dog is experiencing an allergy, that's not environmental, it's typically beef, chicken, soy, or dairy. Hmm. Uh, so vets would prescribe sort of like an elimination diet. They would prescribe sometimes a vegetarian diet, or sometimes what's called a hydrolyzed diet, which is kind of like pressure washed food. It's not something you would maybe feed long-term, but something to kind of figure out if it's a diet related allergen. Um, so a lot of clinical veterinarians, if they see a dog that comes in with patchy skin or, um, brashes or some kind of like irritant, they might opt to, they might, they might suggest that, Hey, like switch over to this meat-free diet for a while. And if it clears up, then probably where you're working with here is an animal protein allergy. And it's, I think it's just interesting, just given that humans don't tend to have that come up. Um, and it's not a huge percentage of dogs, but it's interesting that it's the bulk of food allergies. That's really interesting. And I guess in some cases, maybe it could even be not going as far as going fully plant-based, but maybe even supplementing some of their diets, whether it's just treats or, <laughs> or yeah. A food. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely all different, again, because dog food is just a reflection of a human's own philosophies or, and priorities. We see all kinds of dietary habits that sprinkle down into to dogs. We see some people who honestly, they just want to prep. They want to cook something for their dog. They want to like have that That's show true. of love. So they're, even if they're feeding like, you know, 90% uh, a kibble or a processed dog food, they're putting something on top. They want to like fix a plate. So I think it doesn't, it's interesting because it's, it just ends up being kind of a reflection of like your pet parenting style. Right. <laughs> 
Right. No, I think that's great. And, you know, uh, we talked about a, a good bit in this uh, episode about how a vegan diet uh, can oftentimes be associated with a particular life philosophy. And I think off the bat, you know, I'm, I live here in Louisiana and I think maybe there'd be a lot of folks who might consider like, huh, plant-based dog diets. Like that seems like something just for people out in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but it really, you know, isn't necessarily stereotyped to any one type of pet owner. I mean, you were telling me that you have customers all over the country and uh, for all different types of needs, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I live in the Bay area. I am fully a part of that stereotype. It's been, it's very easy to be someone who doesn't eat meat in this part of the world, this part of the country. Um, but I was so pleasantly surprised and shocked. I grew up in the Southern part of the United States. A lot of our customers live in Texas, Florida. Um, we have customers in new Orleans and Louisiana as well. Like I've just been very pleasantly surprised that it's a much wider distribution of people who are compelled to choose an alternative diet um, than I would have expected. I fully, when we were creating the company, we were thinking about offering next day delivery services. And my brain immediately went to like Brooklyn, San Francisco and LA, but we have next day delivery services in Dallas and Houston and all over the United States, um, which is really refreshing. And I think exciting for the space in general that it has a wider appeal than people might think. Um, we do collect data. We offer a free sample on our website and we do collect data on dietary preferences. It's optional. Um, but about half of people who request a sample from us are plant-based. So vegetarian, vegan, or they don't eat meat entirely. And then the other half are omnivores or they're trying to cut back or they're just interested in the concept of the product. Um, so I think half is a lot, but it's certainly a lot less than I would have expected. I, I thought that we would we would initially have a core that was much more cemented in a um, plant-based lifestyle. And that has really not been the case. So it's been right. really interesting to see. Yeah, no, that is, that is really cool to hear. And um, I think that's an awesome, awesome kind of last note to leave it on. Uh, but we do always have to leave it on two additional positive notes when we end our uh, Cluey podcast. Uh, so we like to end with two glimmers of hope. And, and the first is a question uh, of what is a new innovation in the world of impact that you're particularly jazzed about right now? I'm very interested in upcycling. Okay. Um, I've been very excited. I mean, as we kind of mentioned earlier, upcycling is like very ugly in the pet food space. It's always meant something scary and like salmonella ridden. Yeah. I'm very excited about upcycled ingredients, having a place in pet food that's positive and nutritious and high quality. Um, and that's something that we talk about all the time of finding novel ingredients or sourcing ingredients from upcycled sources. Um, and I think food waste is something that would be really compelling to be a part of. Um, did you ask for one or two? No, just, that, well, that's one. But the second right. question, the second glimmer <laughs> of hope question is, can you rapid fire name three impact focused brands that you absolutely love outside of Petaluma, of course, uh, you know, that you love and use and, and what, what is it that they make? So the first one that comes to mind is Renewal Mill. They okay. are an Oakland based female run, um, upcycled ingredient bakery. They make uh, mostly baking mixes. We partnered with them recently on like a cookie holiday box, which was really fun. Um, they're doing really good work to evangelize the use of upcycled ingredients. Um, so I love that. Um, I personally use milkadamia products all the time. They're a macadamia nut milk. Cool. To me, I think for a lot of people, creamer uh, 
And coffee, if you're like a big coffee drinker, which I am, you can be very particular about it. So I'm very happy to have that <laughs> that alternative in my daily rotation. Um, and then a third one, I guess I'll say, I mean, it's such an obvious one, but um, Patagonia as a company was a big inspiration to us when we were starting it. We also named our company after a place that had meaning to us. Um, and we joined, we became a B Corp and a 1% for the planet brand, like largely kind of following that business for good model. Um, I don't personally own or wear a lot of Patagonia, but I just really appreciate the business that Yvonne has built. Um, and I think it's very cool that he's basically giving the company away now. So yeah. he's a very interesting model for a business that can have really positive externalities and um, one that I'm always keeping tabs on for how they how they talk about their products and um, how they go to market. Yeah, no, that's great. Those are three great brands. Um, well, Caroline, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today uh, and Absolutely. to get our followers clued in about plant-based pet diets. Thank you so much. Of course. And thanks to all of our listeners who tuned in for this episode of the Cluey podcast. You can learn more about Petaluma and their impacts on people and the planet at clueyconsumer.com and search for Petaluma. You can also visit their site at feedpetaluma.com. As a disclaimer, Cluey has an affiliate relationship with Petaluma. We only enter into affiliate relationships with brands who score a B minus or higher on both their people impacts and their planet impacts on our rating system. Our ratings are aggregated from best-in-class third-party data, so Cluey cannot impact the ratings of these brands. If you'd like to learn more about Cluey, our top-rated brands, our ratings, and how we make money, you can find it all at clueyconsumer.com slash about us. Come back next time to get Cluey'd into the latest in the world of conscious consumerism. Mm -hmm.